Welcome to another exciting episode of The Tax Efficient Investor. Listen in as host Michael Johnston demystifies tax-efficient tactics to help you grow your wealth. We break down complex tax strategies and make them simple to understand and easy to implement. From HSAs to IRAs, 1031s, trusts, and more, we cover it all here on The Tax Efficient Investor. Welcome to the show. I'm Michael Johnston. Joining me today is Jacob Turner. Jacob is the co-founder at Moment Private Wealth. Jacob, thanks for joining me. Michael, I'm excited to be on. I think we have a lot of shared commonalities when it comes to taxes and overpaying taxes maybe early in our lives. So looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, great. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to have you on here. You're you're one of my favorite follows on, on social media. I'll make sure that the links are in the show notes here. And I, I reached out to you because you had a, a great post, I thought, a couple of months back now talking about how your, your quote was or your post was, the tax code is built for business owners. And I thought that was a very profound insight. Um, so let's start at a high level. Can you explain what, what do you mean by that, Jacob? Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, everybody wants to try to pay the least amount in taxes possible. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. our tax code is built in a way that it benefits some people greatly. And then for other people, there aren't as many options that they have. So my background coming from a sports background, I was always trying to figure out from a sports perspective, what could I do to potentially leverage the tax code in my favor? And what I found was while there were certainly things I could do, I would always get the same common response of like, well, if you owned a business, you might have more options. And especially with the Trump tax cuts, really the being a business owner in America um, allows you a lot more greater optionality in terms of the different tax planning that you have that's out there. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more, which is not to say if, you, if you're just a, I shouldn't say just, if you're a W-2 earner, there's still a lot you can do. Make sure you do all the, the basics. You get money into your tax advantage accounts. It still moves the needle um, tremendously, especially over the over the long term. So all this stuff is worth doing, regardless if you're a business owner or a W-2 employee. Um, but it, it really gets kicked up. I think if, you, if you're falling to one of two groups, if you're a business owner and if you invest in alternatives, if you're if you're a W-2 employee and you're just investing in, in public stocks and bonds, there's a lot you can do, but it's a fairly straightforward playbook. The real opportunities open up for those who are investing in alternatives, including their own business potentially, uh, and and business owners. Um, well, let me let me get into a few of these, um, Jacob. You you've got a list of, of ten or so of them. Um, let's start with with retirement accounts for for business owners. What do business owners need to know about setting up and contributing to a retirement account? I think it actually, Michael, starts first and foremost for business owners, but really any individual for that matter, making sure that they understand what they're trying to accomplish. Because a lot of times we see all these different tax strategies are out there, whether it's something as simple, quote unquote, as retirement accounts to something a little bit more complex like tax credits, or you hear people talk about QSBS with setting up your business to get all this millions of dollars when you sell it tax-free. But ultimately, you want to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're doing it with your specific goal in mind. And I think retirement accounts are, are a great example of that, you know, you can defer taxes with traditional retirement accounts where you put money in and you are essentially deferring taxes until some point down the road. But you got to understand what are the trade-offs of me potentially deferring those taxes? So I would just start there with understanding what is the business owner trying to accomplish? And then when I think of retirement accounts, everybody first and foremost, always thinks of 401ks, right? So you think of traditional 401ks in a business, typically they have access to a 401k. I think one thing that folks miss out on a lot of times with 401ks, especially business owners is either solo 401ks for business owners where there's some additional optionality. 
And then also things like mega backdoors where they can potentially take advantage of the full $66,000 as opposed to everybody thinks about the pre-tax amount of 22,500. Right. Yeah, no, great points there. And, and um, if you're an entrepreneur, you're not going to have, you know, HR is not going to show up and knock on your door on day one and say, how much do you want to contribute to your 401k, right? It kind of falls on you uh, as, as the business owner to, to set that up. And I think a lot of business owners don't think about that. And I'll just admit here, Jacob, like, I screwed that up with with the first company that I started. I didn't set up a solo 401k or a, a SEP IRA or a simple IRA or, or some of the other options. And I left money on the table, right? Because I, I didn't get money into that tax sheltered account. And unfortunately, it's kind of two ways to look at retirement accounts. It, it um, is renewable in the sense you can contribute. You mentioned 22500 or 66000 Those are amounts you can contribute each year. The flip side of that is if you miss it, you can't go back and catch up on that, right? Like I can't go back and contribute, make my 2012 contribution now um, to, to my solo 401k. So um, there's just kind of some some urgency behind setting this up, I think, if you're a business owner. Yeah, I think the other thing too, Michael, that I, I personally think about a lot is what are my different tax diversification buckets in terms of my investment accounts? So you have your taxable accounts, which are things like your brokerage account or even just your cash holding account. Those are things that you have quick, easy access to. Then you have your tax deferred accounts, like we just talked about, where more traditional retirement accounts, whether that's IRAs, simple IRAs, 401ks, solo 401ks, where this money is going to be taxed at some point in the future, but you're getting a current year tax benefit. And then you have your tax-free accounts, like a Roth IRA, essentially mm -hmm. anything with a Roth designation in front of it, where you're saying, I'm not getting any tax benefit today, most likely, but I'm going to get this amazing tax benefit in the future. For me personally, as I think about that, even from being a business owner myself, I'm always looking at what is this going to potentially look like in the future and trying not to be short-sighted on the fact that, okay, I could focus on this traditional retirement account, but in the future, am I just setting myself up for this really large tax bill in the future? Right. Now, that's not always the case, but I think more often than not, especially for the folks that we work with that are high net worth to ultra high net worth, and they get to the retirement stage, and all of a sudden they've deferred all these taxes, but really mm -hmm. what they've done is just created this massive tax liability down the road. So um, a little bit of a tangent there, but something that I personally think a lot about. I think it's a great point, Jacob. We think I think a lot of people spend time, a lot of time and energy thinking about how do I get as much money as possible into my tax advantage accounts? I spend less time thinking about, well, how do I get as much money as I can out on the back end, right? And that's uh, for a lot of people, um, it's a good problem to have, but accumulating wealth is fairly easy and the, the deaccumulating can be um, can be tricky, but um, but equally as important. Um, I'll link in the show notes. We did a great episode with, with David Graham, who kind of talked on this, as well as just when you, you get that money in there, how are you allocating across the, the different buckets? Some asset classes do better than uh, do, do well in, in certain accounts and, and less well in others. Um, but th that's a whole other topic for a, <laughs> yeah. uh, for a much longer conversation. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. Thinking about and if one of my guests said you start at the end and kind of think about um, pulling that money out and, and you kind of view some of these things a little bit differently, maybe. No, um, yeah. So so let's talk a, a, another of, of these um, strategies that you mentioned that I also think doesn't get talked about a lot is that as a business owner, you've got the potential to hire your spouse and potentially your kids, potentially other family members as well. Can you ex explain at a high level how that could be a, a tax saving maneuver? 
Yeah. So, you know, I think you'll see a lot of things on social media about hiring your spouse and your kids. And let me first and foremost say that if you're going to hire your spouse and your kids, you need to do it the right way. Paying them a salary and not having them do anything in the business is a great way to get audited and to get in trouble with the IRS. So I'm going to preface it by saying that if you're going to do it, you need to do it the right way. But I do think there's options for especially kids once they get to close to a working age, so to speak, where they can do things in the business and they can make some sort of income from that. And it's a great way to, one, potentially save money in taxes. But two, I think even more valuable is it gives you the opportunity to talk to them about money, to talk to them about saving, to talk to them about just the basic levels of even a retirement account where you can start you know, having them make some money. They can potentially take the standard deduction where they're essentially making, quote unquote, no money from a tax purpose standpoint. And maybe they're taking some of that money and they're contributing it to a Roth IRA or a retirement account where you're starting to be able to teach them some of these basic fundamentals of personal finance, things that my dad owned a small business, um, but he never taught me a lot of these basic blocking and tackling maneuvers that, well, I think sometimes they get pushed down because there's not these massive numbers behind them. We're not talking two, three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars in tax savings over the course of a really long period of time can have a, a massive impact. Totally agree. So let's let's I want to dive in and, and just kind of um, a couple of those points you made. They're great points. So the, the tax savings today, I think it essentially it's essentially I think of it as tax arbitrage. Say you're a business owner, you're in the highest tax bracket. Say you're in a 37 percent tax bracket. If you you pay your kids, that reduces your income. It reduces the amount of income that's taxed at that highest rate. And you see shift that down to, to their tax bracket, which, as you mentioned, to take a standard deduction can effectively be zero or those, those very low, uh, very low tax brackets. Is that kind of the right way to, to think about this is essentially tax arbitrage, moving income from your, you, the business owner in a high tax bracket to your kid, the minor in a, in a low tax bracket? Yeah, I like that term tax arbitrage because you you are essentially just, I don't like the term taking advantage of the tax code, but you're understanding how the tax code works yeah. and you're leveraging it for the fact that you happen to own a business and you have the optionality to do these things. Yeah. Um, again, I think it goes back to understanding first and foremost, like what are you trying to accomplish? Everybody wants to save money in taxes, but the goal is to save the most amount in, in our lifetime tax bill, not just in one specific year. And it's also a reminder that, hey, if we're going to be giving money to our kids and we're going to do this to lower our tax bill, what are our kids doing it with? What are the additional benefits that we could potentially do by giving this money, by transferring this money to our kids as they're working in the business? Right. I, I think it's also a great point you made about the Roth IRA for your kids. This is one of my one of the things that um, far too few people do. My parents, God bless them, I, I love them, but they just had no idea, right? They they could have done this for me, and and they didn't. Um, and if you can can transfer, if you can get your kids some earned income, essentially, um, it's it's easy technically to set up a, a Roth IRA. But the kind of catch is you have to have you have to have earned income um, in order to do it. And, and for a lot of kids, that's that's pretty difficult. Right. Like my my little guy who's over my shoulder here, he's, he's a little bit under a year. Right. So there's nothing he can do to really earn income. But um, at a certain point, he can start making money from, you know, mowing lawns can qualify or you know working for his, his dad's business, hopefully someday, even just doing uh, you know menial tasks. And I think it's a great point too you make about 
Uh, you don't want to want to tempt an audit. But anyways, if you can get your kids to have legitimate fair market value, fair compensation, earned income, they become eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA. And when you start a Roth IRA very young, by the time they're 59 and a half, um, good things happen over the long term. I think Albert Einstein said that uh, compounding returns are the eighth wonder of the world. And I think that's uh, no better illustration of that than a, a Roth IRA that you open for a 10 year old, probably. Yeah, I I probably have more of a fascination with Roth IRAs and trying to get as much money personally in them as I possibly can. Uh, you know, reading stories about like Peter Thiel and how he's has yeah. his million dollar Roth IRA and, and things are, are are certainly outlier examples. But I think there's a ton of examples that if people strategize from a really young age about how they could potentially get more money into that tax free Roth IRA bucket. And you showed them what the benefits of that are moving forward, more people would do it. But oftentimes they don't either know what to do, they don't know how to get the money in there, or they don't realize that sometimes paying taxes on the upfront can be a good thing. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think I think Peter Thiel, I think he I think he invested 500 k and got a little bit over 10% of Facebook as the first outside investor. Yeah. Um in a Roth IRA. And uh, you're right, neither of us is probably going to make that savvy of investments, but um, do it on a smaller scale, maybe, right? Yeah, no, for sure. Well, even, you know, and one thing I'll say is like, even from a Roth IRA standpoint, you touched on this a little bit, that depending on which one of those buckets, whether it's the taxable, the tax-free or the tax-deferred, like what kind of investments you potentially have in there. And one thing yeah. that that I've done, and I encourage a lot of the clients that we we have that we work with to do is that, hey, let's if we're going to take some chances on some potential big investment opportunities, the Roth IRA is a great place to do it. The growth is going to be tax-free in there. Um, and you're not going to have to worry about how that private investment chooses to allocate towards the tax code because you are in a essentially a safe haven from whatever they do. Yep. Oh, it's it's a great point. It makes a big difference. You think if if Peter Thiel had, had made these investments in a fully taxable account uh, and put bonds in the Roth IRA, for example, um, it'd be a yeah. very very different picture. He'd be facing a very different uh, very different tax bill. Um, well, well, let's move on. I guess just one other one other point on uh, on hiring kids and spouse. Yes, do it the right way. Um, sometimes parents too. If parents live with you, I've talked to folks who are you know have a um, supporting their parents. They're they're living with them, and um, and again, do it the right way. Make sure you're paying them a, a fair market value for for what they're doing, but um, can potentially in include them in that bucket as well. I think, you know, one thing that I would mention too, Michael, before we transition out of this is yeah. if you are a business owner and you want to be doing more tactical tax planning, I mm -hmm. think it's really important that you understand who who's on your team from a CPA perspective, because one mm -hmm. thing that I think a lot of business owners miss is they get a CPA at the beginning of their business because they knew them. It was a family friend. It was the first person they met that did taxes. And then maybe they're not the right person for the stage of business that they're at. And every single question that they ask about, you know, whether it's hiring your kids or something else, the answer is just no. And the answer is no, because the individual either doesn't have the complexity to work with them, has never done that before, and isn't confident in doing that. Because ultimately, if you were to ever get audited, the CPA is the person that's standing behind that tax return. They're the person that signed their name on the tax return and said that by everything that we have put forth, we feel comfortable with this. And I think one question that you can ask your CPA is, instead of asking, can I do this? Asking, if I wanted to do this, how would I go about doing it? Where it makes them start thinking more critically around what are the strategies that I could potentially do 
And if I wanted to do this, how much complexity would it add in my life? Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's a great point. And I've had, you know, I'm, I'm nodding my head here furiously because I've had this experience with, uh, with CPOs where they can be very bright folks, but there's kind of some weird incentives, right? They're, they're kind of getting a, a flat fee to prepare your taxes and they don't want to necessarily take on, uh, take on a, a bunch of risk. And you mentioned it could potentially be, be them on the line. So uh, I think it's a great point. I've had a lot of conversations with CPAs where they've told me I can't do something. And I found out later, you actually, you can do it or, you know, there's, um, yep. there's different levels of, of risk that you can take on. Um, but there's certainly a lot of stuff that doesn't even veer into the gray area, um, let alone kind of crossing over that line. Yep. Um, let me ask you, Jacob, about uh, about QBI deductions. This is another another thing that you've mentioned that business owners can can take advantage of. A lot of folks have no idea what this is. It's another uh, acronym in the alphabet soup. And I think a lot of people probably miss out on on taking advantage here. Yeah, I mean, so the QBI deduction is is interesting. And for me specifically, when I first got into business back in 2021 was something that I researched specifically because when we first started the company, it depended a lot on how we wanted to structure the company from the from the start. So when we first started our business, we were structured as a partnership. We've since moved to getting taxed as an S corporation. And if you're taxed as an S corporation and you take a certain amount in salary, some of that money can have the QBI deduction. Um, now, this depends on what kind of business you have. If you're classified as an SSTB, which is a service-based business, essentially. So in my business as a wealth advisor, we are classified as that, which therefore limits what the QBI deduction looks like for us. But for a lot of business owners, one thing that they miss is when people think of S-Corps, the first thing they think is like, let's pay myself the lowest amount in salary and let's take out the highest amount in distributions which inherently is not typically wrong because you're saving some level of taxes by doing that. But I think what people miss is also taking into account potentially the QBI deduction. And if I raise my salary to a certain level, I could potentially take a bigger QBI deduction. I think this goes back to having qualified professionals on your team where they're running different scenarios for you to see what the biggest break is for you. Because even for me now, Michael, as I talk with a lot of entrepreneurs, they don't know what QBI is. They don't know how it works. They don't know how it's structured. And even if you talk to most CPAs, a lot of times it's like, well, the structure is an S-corp. We're going to take the lowest salary we can. And then you bring up the QBI deduction and it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, we can look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a great point. Um, and I'll also link to the show notes. Just did a, an episode with, with Nate Yesner. We go into more detail on the, the S-corp election. Um, and just, I think technically how that works is if you take a, a lower salary and a, a higher distribution, um, you can essentially save on, on some of the, the self-employment taxes or the, the payroll taxes that, um, that, that would typically be paid if you're, um, if you're a W2 employee or the, I guess the self-employment taxes, if, if you're a partnership, is that right, Jacob? Yeah, that's correct. So it's a, it's a roughly 15% that you would be saving in taxes between if you took it as a salary and you're paying those mm-hmm. payroll taxes versus if you took it as a distribution. But one thing to think about with the QBI deduction is the QBI deduction is focused on what you're taking as a salary. So although if you're saying, we'll use an example, Michael, let's say we took a $100,000 salary and we took out $300,000 as distribution in our business, we felt like the $100,000 salary was a reasonable wage, right? So we take out the 100,000 in salary, we do the 300,000 in distributions, we can save the 15% roughly in payroll taxes on that 300,000 in distributions. That's a win. Now, one thing we need to look at though is depending on how the business is, 
how much money the individual's making is going to depend on what a potential QBI deduction would look like. And that QBI deduction is going to be based on the salary number they take. So although the $100,000 salary as a starting point sounds like a good number, if that QBI deduction is going to be greater than the 15% you would have saved in payroll taxes, now all of a sudden let's say, well, we want to shift some of that 300000 back into salary. We'll pay the payroll taxes, but because that QBI deduction is going to be greater, I'd rather do that. It's one of those things that I would encourage every single business owner to ask their CPA. And I would just ask this question. When you ran the calculation between the QBI deduction versus me taking it as a salary versus distribution and paying the payroll taxes, what did it come out to? Mm-hmm. Because chances yep. are they, they probably haven't done it. And that's not any fault of their own, but it allows you to ask the question and allows them to say, okay, he's thinking about this. I need, a, I need to do a calculation to figure out what would be the optimal structure for them. It's, you know, it, it maybe sounds a bit complicated. It's really not that difficult of, you know, we're not talking about a multivariable regression analysis here, right? There's kind of a, a few variables. It's, it's actually, I think, a fairly straightforward analysis to run. Certainly should be, um, I think a lot of our listeners could, could probably do it on their own if they kind of understand the variables, but but certainly should be something that your your CPA could, could help you out with. Um, yeah, I would agree. And there's some amazing visuals that um, I've seen on social and also online that that outline the QBI deduction. And to your point, Michael, this is not the most complicated formula in the world. I mean, you can follow essentially three paths down depending on how much money you're making, what kind of business you are, and then ultimately what you're taking in potential salary to figure out, all right, here's what my QBI deduction would potentially look like. Yeah. Well, last last point I'll make on on this, Jacob, before we, we jump to another topic. You mentioned earlier, if you're hiring your, your spouse or your kids, um, do it the right way. I'd, I'd say that too, with with kind of setting your salary. Um, I think this is something that the IRS has mentioned they're going to be keeping an eye on, uh, making sure people don't set artificially high or low salaries for themselves, depending on on what you know what they're trying to game and, and where the biggest benefit is. So. Um, I, I think that's, you know, uh, you, you could potentially be be too far to, to one extreme or the other, and you open yourself up to, to audit risk there. But there is a window there, right, that you can justify a slightly lower, a, a slightly higher salary within a, a reasonable range of what market-based compensation would be. But um, I, I caution people against saying, my you know, my salary is a dollar and my salary is uh, is millions of dollars, um, potentially run into some some audit risk there as well. Yeah, I think it goes back to taking ownership of your own financial life. You can hire as many professionals as you want. But one thing that I feel like I've learned in my own life through sports and now entrepreneurship is it does take some responsibility on your side to do a little bit of the upfront research and make sure that whatever strategy you're implementing, either you have a basic understanding of it or you are comfortable with whatever the risks are on a scale of zero to 10. I'll use an example for myself. When we first got structured as an S-Corp, the CPA came to me with just a random number and said, I think this is a reasonable salary range. And I said, well, where'd you get the number from? And he's like, well, that's kind of like what I'm seeing other wealth advisors take in salary. So I did a simple Google search and went to figure out some data based on it. And I said, I came back with a different number. And I said, here's all the data that I have to back this up. Because essentially what you're doing with most of the things in the tax code is you are by stacking an argument that whatever you are saying is true. There's a lot of things in the tax code that are somewhat of a gray area. Not everybody's going to take the same salary for the same position they're in. So you have to have evidence to be able to back that up to your point, Michael. But I think it ultimately comes down to 
having some level of responsibility for your own financial life and making sure that, yes, you have a qualified team of people around you, but you need to have a basic understanding of what's going on. Um, great advice in general there that that you need to take ownership and um, and, and feel comfortable and um, ultimately it's your money, right? Yep. Um, and, and no one's going to care care as much about it as as you are. So I, I think that's I think that's great advice, um, I, specifically on that topic as well as in general, Jacob. Let me ask you about I want to ask you about one more here. Um, R and D tax credits, and, and you you've written the one thing better than a tax deduction is a tax credit. So can you explain what you mean by that, and, and then let's talk specifically about R and D tax credits. Yeah, so everybody thinks about tax deductions and tax deductions are great. We'll use a, an easy example. If you've got a $20,000 tax deduction, that means that your tax bill goes from being what's called $100,000. Now, all of a sudden, you're getting taxed at $80,000 mm-hmm. versus the credit. Instead of you getting that deduction, you're just actually getting that money. Um, yeah. So there is a, a big differentiator between a deduction and a credit. If a deduction was here, like on level five, a credit is like level 10. I think this is another one of those things where it becomes hyper-specific into the type of business you have and looking into and understanding, specifically for R&D credits, what could I potentially be doing in my business to potentially get these credits? But it goes back first and foremost to having some level of understanding and taking some sort of responsibility. Because one thing that I've seen, and I got an email recently about this, was Somebody was saying that, oh, I, I'm taking this, I'm going to get this R&D credit back for this thing we're doing. And I kind of scratched my head and I was looking at it. Look, I'm not the person signing off on their tax return and I'm not the person arguing this, but I would say that the chances of them getting a R&D credit for that are really low. And if that happened, that would have meant that they would have spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on something that they are ultimately going to have to pay for. So hmm. while credits can be great, you need to really understand what you're going to be getting them for. And usually they're in some sort of hyper-specific niche business that you do, where you know that if we do this one thing, we are going to get a tax credit for doing that. I think one of the most common ones you see, and this is a not in the R&D space, but just in, in the real estate space, when people go into old properties and they're getting a credit from the Historical Preservation Society by keeping a certain window or keeping a certain door, keeping a certain element in a real estate property, they're getting a credit for doing that. So I, I would first and foremost, go back to making sure that you understand what you're getting into, but the, the credits are kind of the holy grail of the tax code. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I like to tell people, you know, it's fun to talk about the the how and, and what uh, of the tax incentives, but it's helpful to kind of zoom out sometimes too, and, and think about why, like, why does this incentive exist, right? And it's because our, our, we as a society through through our legislators want to incentivize uh, some some type of behavior, right? And that often means um, getting into some gray areas potentially about what qualifies as um, what what qualifies as R and D, for example, and and what doesn't, what's going to be eligible. Um, but it, it's helpful to kind of you know think about. Um, it's not always the case, but helpful to think about. Well, am I kind of meeting like the the intent of this incentive? What it was created for? Am I actually doing uh, what it was what it was designed to do. So um, kind of a, a helpful smell test there, I guess. Well, we, we talked a little bit about at the beginning of this conversation, this idea that the tax code's built for business owners. And why yeah. is the tax code built for business owners? Because the government wants to incentivize people to start businesses. If people start businesses, it helps the economy grow. If the economy grows, more people have jobs. And we kind of go round and round. So much to your point, I couldn't agree more that you have to understand why is there an incentive in the first place? 
Um, another example I would give is like opportunity zone investing, which is a real estate mm-hmm. investing. Could be a great potential option for people. There's great potential tax benefits. There's some true experts out there in the space, but understanding why is there an incentive if I put money into a qualified opportunity zone? And I think your point couldn't be couldn't be more spot on. You need to understand why the incentive's there in the first place, because I think it helps you inherently understand what is the potential risk in me trying to do something in this space. Right. Um, that, that's yeah, that's well put. I like that, Jacob. Um, well, well, let me ask you um, last question here. Hopefully, I think, you know, this conversation, I hope, has gotten some folks in our audience. It's gotten some wheels turning. They're thinking, oh, I didn't know about this. I, I can take advantage of this. I need to go do a deeper dive and, and figure out if this applies to me. It sounds like maybe it is, but I, I need to understand it a little bit better. So for folks who are having that light bulb go off or it's kind of turning those wheels, where can they go to, to follow you, to learn more about you and to, to reach out if they want to work with you? Yeah, I'm active on all the social media platforms, um, LinkedIn, X, Instagram, and then I've just recently started on YouTube. My handle on every platform is the Jacob Turner. You can also find our website at momentprivatewealth.com. And we focus on helping athletes and entrepreneurs uh, not only grow their wealth, but also protect it and pay less in taxes. Okay. Very good. We'll make sure all of those are in the show notes. So they're easy and at everyone's fingertips. Jacob, this has been a great conversation. Uh, I really appreciate your insights and thank you for coming on. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you having me. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.